Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. Protests have spread across Latin America in recent weeks, with demonstrations erupting in Ecuador to Bolivia, Haiti to Honduras. But Chile has seen one of the most significant and long-lasting movements, with millions of people pouring into the streets for the last month straight. The protests there began in mid-October and have not waned, despite government curfews, newly imposed laws, and draconian police violence against protesters. Here to join us to discuss this uprising is Pablo Vivanco. He is a freelance multimedia journalist, producer, and commentator. He's also the former director of Telesor English. So you just got back from your home country, Chile, to report on the demonstrations that have rocked the country for the last few weeks. Uh, can you start by explaining how these protests first began? Sure. So uh, in October, the, uh, the, Fed, the, the national government of Sebastián Piñera uh, announced that they would be increasing uh, the, the fares in Santiago's metro system. Uh, this was, uh, you know, the, the the subway system, the metro system was something that uh, was was kept even public for most of the dictatorship. Uh, but it's something that under the last term of Bachelet, they introduced a public-private partnership. And so um, the administration and collection affairs is something that the private sector started to have a hand in. When the government announced this, students, particularly high school students, started taking actions. They started calling for what they what what they they began organizing these demonstrations that they called fair evasions, uh, massive fair evasions. And what they would do is they would go on mass to uh, mm-hmm. a, a subway station and just basically rush it. And everyone would jump the turnstiles, but you know they would actually make a point once they had jumped of, you know, doing chants, uh, particularly one uh, which I liked was um, that saying, uh, uh, evade the fair, don't pay, this is another form of struggle. Obviously, it, it's, it rhymes in Spanish, so it sounds better. But, um, you know, this was, this, this was something that started to raise uh, attention. The, the thing really kind of kicked off after the government did a couple things which just really pissed people off, right? Uh, the response to it, the, the president of the metro system went on TV and, you know, in a very patronizing way, said to students just outright, kids, you know, this, this thing that you're doing hasn't taken off. People aren't supporting you. And, huh. um, you know, other ministers went on TV and said, you know, responding to the concerns around what a fair increase would mean to people that are learning, already earning low income, which is a significant portion of the population. Uh, and they responded, well, if you can't pay, go to go, you know, travel in off peak hours, get up earlier and go home later. And th- this is this just kind of epitomized the 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 sentiment that's that's uh, and the the way that the political class has been responding to the concerns of Chilean working people when it comes to just the rising cost of living, uh, and you know the the basically everything in in Chilean society which is framed by uh, this market orthodoxy, everything is run by the market. Uh, the cost of everything increasing, and except obviously salaries don't don't match to this. And this is why, you know, you've seen in Chile over the last 10, 15 years, every year, there's a massive demonstrations over something, uh, education, health, pensions, whatever, all of it is rooted in the same thing. 
And eventually uh, what, what happened with these, these fare increases is they just kind of catalyzed and it brought out to the street this accumulated frustration that people were, were, were feeling. So Chile has, uh, you know, the, the student movement is very well organized, not just in universities, but also high school students are they're organized in, in their own federations. They were out doing these demonstrations. But on Friday, October 18th, what, what happened is that uh, the, the, the frustration went well beyond the students. So there, there was, uh, again, in, in that evening, uh, there were uh, a number of the, the metro stations which were burnt down. Um, uh, but again, there, there wasn't there wasn't like there was any sort of organization at this point calling for even demonstrations that led to that. A lot of this was just kind of a spontaneous uh, reaction and, and the a spilling out into the streets of the sort of frustration that has been accumulating in Chilean society for uh, decades now, actually. Um, talk about how much the fare increase was in that, you know, the proportionality to just like living uh, living costs in Chile. Sure. So the the uh, uh, a slogan, and I should I should say this because you know it will seem kind of negligible if I say, well, it's a thirty cent increase. Uh, you know, the, the a slogan on the streets of the demonstrations is it's not about thirty cents; it's about thirty years. You know, thirty years since uh, the country returned. Uh, well, or the, the the country returned to a civilian government. Thirty years since the end of the Pinochet dictatorship. But uh, 30 years where the population has been waiting for uh, the, the actual basis of the dictatorship to be undone, and that, that hasn't happened. The minimum wage in Chile is around 300,000 pesos. Uh, that works out to about, you know, 350, between 350, $380, uh, depending on what the exchange rate is at the time. Um, but Chile's an exceptionally... Uh, um, expensive country, uh, by uh, certainly by Latin American standards. I mean, anyone who's traveled there has probably kind of taken note of that, right? Like, um, you know, just even food on the street and stuff like that. It, it's expensive, um, and so uh, thirty. Uh, what 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 I had seen is that uh, you know the the fare increase would mean that someone on minimum wage would be spending roughly about twenty percent of their uh, monthly income on transportation, right? Like so, um, and a, a significant number uh, around um, uh, an estimate of 500,000 people in the country earn in around minimum wage. So, um, you know, that's a significant number of people. The, the vast majority of those people have been concentrated in Santiago, which has somewhere around half the population of the country as a whole. So that lots of people, uh, you know, being significantly affected by that. But again, like, I mean, I can't uh, understate the fact that it, it isn't actually just about the fare increase. It's about what the fare mm-hmm. increase represented. The fare increase also happened at a time when electricity costs went up, right? Like they went up basically on the same day or the same week. Um, so it it's again, like these things just were snowballing. Uh, and, um, you know, but they all had the same, they, they all kind of looked the same and felt the same to, to people in Chile. It was, you know, just this constant barrage of uh, increases to uh, their, uh, their, their cost of living at the same time as they see this uh, in, indifference and arrogance and, and uh, from the, 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 the political class and from the people making decisions in, to increase these costs, right? So that's, that's basically what, what led to uh, that anger that you saw on the street on the, the 18th and, and since. 
Right. And, and something that struck me the most, I think, is just the astute political consciousness of the youth in particular. I mean, as you mentioned, these protests are not new. They've been swelling kind of over the last decade or so. But but the youth kind of mobilizing and having this understanding of the economic situation, the political situation and the need for action here. But as you said, I mean, this is spread to kind of all sectors of society. This is this is everywhere. I mean, talk about that and um kind of how far reaching it is at this point, you know, and, and you were on the streets there, you were talking to people, what have the core demands kind of morphed into at this point? Yeah, you know, and what what I've been telling people since I came back, uh, obviously, you know, I've, I've been following the situation in Chile for a long time. Uh, I think anybody who uh, had been, you know, f- following everything that's been happening in Chile can't be too surprised about what happened, but still, uh, I it, it I was uh, impacted by the extent of of what I saw. Right, like um, we traveled a lot of Santiago. We were also in Valparaíso. That's uh, a major port city, about two hours from from uh, Santiago, which is where uh, my family is. We also went down to Temuco, which is uh, the um, the, the, one of the larger cities in the south, one of the, the largest cities in the Araucanía region, where where the Mapuche communities are are kind of centered in and around, and you know every bit of wall that there is is graffitied with uh, you know some slogan that relates to what's happening on the streets right now. When you when you ask about what are the demands, the demands are everything. The demands <laughs> are that everything needs to change. Um, that's what that's one of the things that that is making it difficult for the Piñera government to do anything around this because you know they've they they've tried a mixture of uh, um, repression uh, with uh, imposing curfews and sending the military out in the streets and now passing uh, anti mask laws and uh, whatever with with these sort of uh, um, reforms as they're calling it meant to appease some of these concerns so they they passed what they called um an increase to the minimum wage by about uh 49,000 pesos uh you know give or take around 60 70 bucks uh but what it was it wasn't a minimum wage increase it was a subsidy more or less a government bonus so they're going to be subsidizing the private sector people just got more infuriated by it uh, you know, every, everyone out on the streets isn't talking about there. Yeah, they are putting out there that Pineda needs to resign for X and Y reason. Um, and they are talking about things that are concrete. They're talking about the end to the private pensions, which which we can talk about. They're talking about uh, free education, which is something that people have been talking about for years. They're talking about uh, justice for uh, and, and sovereignty for Mapuche communities. Um, they're talking about, um, you know, e- even changing the curriculum in education to um, you know, uh, make it uh, less sexist and, and patriarchal. Uh, all these things are out in the streets, but everyone is, if, and you talk to anyone out in the streets, taxi drivers, whatever, everyone understands that none of this is possible unless the country's constitution is changed. And that right. constitution was something that was uh, drafted under, under dictatorship, approved un- at the barrel of a gun under dictatorship, um, and specifically, it was it was crafted um, by Pinochet's like intellectual architect Jaime Guzman, like explicitly to handcuff any future government from doing anything uh, in even if it's the popular will that would 
uh, undo the the sort of you know tangled web of, uh, of 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 ensuring that the private sector can just dominate every aspect of Chilean society. So folks understand that none of this is possible unless that constitution is done away with. Uh, and, and important to note, the the people don't want uh, now don't trust the government to do it. Pineda also his government. Uh, after he did a, a cabinet shuffle and brought in, you know, some more, uh, um, I, I don't want to say neutral, but I guess less hardline uh, folks into his cabinet, they put forward a proposal that the Congress would draft the new constitution and, um, you know, put it forward to to plebiscite. People don't want that. Uh, there's Since they've made that announcement, there's been, again, millions of people on the street because they, they don't trust the government to do it. And, um, you know, now that people have seen the the extent to which everyone feels the same and that there's this general consensus amongst uh, most of the most of of Chile I would say I wouldn't just even say most of uh, Chilean working people I would say the the majority of Chilean society understands that something dramatic needs to change and they don't trust the the, the political class to be the ones to do it so the Chilean government seems to be saying that a great deal or pretty much the whole protest movement is staged by outside agitators like Cuba and Venezuela. And they're also putting out false flag rhetoric. I, and I, I haven't been closely following the Western media's coverage of this here. I've been seeking out more alternative media sources, but coupled with what I just said, also comment on the Western media's uh, portrayal of what's going on right now in Chile and, and how even in some ways maybe that compares to the government's actual official line. Yeah, so I, I guess maybe first dealing with the the, the media, uh, I can tell you that there's, well, I mean, I, I don't know how it is in, in totally in the in the States. Like, I mean, I can tell you from, from Canadian media that it's pretty much invisible, right? Right. Um, there, Same. There, there isn't much being said about it at all. Um, and I can tell you, like, I mean, that there's also... Um, a bit of an indifference from from a lot of media around it. Uh, you know, as as somebody active in the Chilean community, we've been trying to get folks in media, in mainstream media here that we have contacts with, to cover it, and there's just no interest, right? Uh, meanwhile, every day, like I mean, every day I listen to you know the, the CBC or whatever, and things like Hong Kong are still being talked about every day, regardless of what's happened there. Right. Um, but, Interesting. But what, the, just really quickly, how, like, what is the comparison and what they're, how they're talking about Chile right now compared to was CBC or any Canadian outlets covering the, the Venezuela protests, like when it was oh, really yeah, yeah, into coup making territory. Absolutely. Okay. Interesting. Like, I mean, it was, it was being, it's, it's obviously being covered very regularly mm-hmm. uh, and Got from it. all different types of angles. Uh, and, uh, again, I'm not. I'm not saying that other things shouldn't be covered. I'm just saying that it's it's very interesting the the in, in sort of disinterest that media has shown to um, what are huge. Like, I mean, it's when when you have when you have uh, a population of about 15 million people and you have two million of them out on the streets. That's pretty significant, no? <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> when you have the 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 COP twenty five being canceled, APEC being canceled, the final of the Copa Libertadores being canceled, all of these things, like, and there's no interest in it. Um, you know, cops shooting people, it, like two hundred people have lost eyes in protest. Uh, there's no interest in that. It's it's been it's been actually quite surprising. As someone who actually works in media, I've actually been surprised 
at the level of disinterest in anything going on in, in, in Chile. But that 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 is the reality, uh, at least here in this media landscape. It, it, there, there hasn't been much uh, much really said about it. Two, two things here, which, which are very different. On the one hand, any attempt to minimize uh, people's concerns are something that just has fed into people's frustrations and anger. Right. So obviously, when they hear um, and very, very initially, the, the government tried to kind of sort of pull this line being like, oh, well, you know, this is outside agitators that just kind of pissed people off more because it was just more dismissal of the things that everyone just feels very probably every any again, anyone you talk to will have not just some abstract ideological position. They have a, their own personal story about how they're impacted by this, right? You know, you talk to an old person, they're gonna to talk to you about their miserable pensions and how most of them need to continue working. My own, my own uh, father works worked in, in the mining sector for, for years. So actually relatively, he's got a fairly decent pension. But he can't retire because he's, he's got an apartment that he lives in with his girlfriend. And if he doesn't continue working, he can't pay for it. Um, and his situation is better than most, I would say, right? Um, I've talked to, you know, a 70-something-year-old uh, teacher who's still working because oh, she works in the evenings part-time because otherwise her pension doesn't give her enough to live on. Uh, talked with students who, aside from their issues around how much they have to pay for education, they obviously all got other aspects of their life. I talked to a student who had to pay $20,000 uh, for a surgery, right? You know, the, the, there's just this accumulation. So if a government comes in and t says, no, people, people are actually happy and it's just Cuba and Venezuela. <laughs> that's stirring it up people are going to get pissed and a lot of that stuff got dismissed now the other part to this is uh as i was stating right as i was stating uh previously there is also still a lot of uh um, mistrust of the government that uh has that that has really intensified now uh because of everything that's happened and people actually are talking about false flags but not in the way that that you think they're not talking about Venezuela and Cuba. They're talking about the government themselves being involved uh, in false flag operations. Uh, like to make the protesters look like to make really the violent. To make the protesters look violent. Got it. Um, you know, and in in some cases also to cover up what could be uh, you know actual murders, right? Um, yeah. And and I don't say this lightly because I, I I'm not prone to uh, talk about you know, or to give much credence, honestly, to, to some of the, the false flag narratives. But, um, you know, I, I talked to a family member of, you know, somebody who was found uh, inside the, the rubble of one of these uh, supermarkets that had been looted, um, along with four other people, you know, so their charred remains were found in this. But the, 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 the autopsy showed that the, the kid had been shot three times, right? Um, so, you know, that that's, that's not that's not somebody going in and then to loot and then getting caught in fire. You know what I mean? This is that's mm -hmm. not an accidental stuff, an accidental thing. Those are those are the things that used to happen routinely in the dictatorship, right? Um, so there's a lot of things kind of going on right now, and a lot of and, and anytime there's something violent happening, people are suspecting uh, that the, the 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 government, that the state, the police are are or could be behind it. Very interesting. Things get quite convoluted. I mean, it, it is interesting that, you know, it's uh, that a country 
can sort of make the declaration that the protest movement is basically astroturfed. It sort of reminds me of, you know, painting discontentment in the United States as being some kind of Russian engineering plot. Right. Um, that it's a foreign, you know, it's foreign meddling that's causing people in the country to be discontent with the government. I mean, it's just, it's such a ridiculous premise on its face. But we saw extremely horrifying videos and still photographs, um, mostly, you know, via social media. I didn't even really see these through mainstream media here in the States of extreme violence uh, being carried out by the uh, Chilean police forces and military. I mean, for example, eyes being blown out of sockets, yeah. um, completely arbitrary mass beatings of civilians who, from what I saw in the videos, didn't even appear to be part of like an actual march or a protest. There was a video clip, um, and I don't know if you saw this, Pablo, of it seemed like they were maybe rerouting part of the march or protest, and the people were trying to like leave the area, and a mob of cops just started going up to each person on the line and yeah. beating them with nightsticks. Like yeah, that was, young that was women. That was in Valparaiso, where my, where my, my, like that's my hometown. So yeah, like I mean, I recognize. Wow. Absolutely nuts. I recognize the those those hills. Those are people walking down from the hills. But yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. And like I mean, I I I saw it myself, right? Like I mean, uh, and this is. Um, I don't think it's unique necessarily to to Chilean police, but uh, it's it's definitely something that they're known for. Is that they they they're taught like I mean this is an institution that flourished under a dictatorship, right? Um, yeah. And that in a lot of ways, you know, the the their their mo is was something that was honed during dictatorship and it continues till today. So they they the cops relish in these demonstrations and being able to. Uh, fight with protesters and beat people, right? Like I would see cops point to protesters and then signal kind of like going across their their neck, like they're gonna they're gonna kill them, right? I saw that, right? Um, I saw how the cops would take aim because I, I like where they're filming, right? They're, they 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 take aim and they shoot the, um, the 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 tear gas, which is tear gas and pepper spray kind of combined, uh, not upwards as they're supposed to, right? But, you know, at people, uh, at head level, um, I saw people going away injured with with uh, with the, 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 the pellets, right, with, you know, in their face everywhere. I got hit myself, or luckily in, in my in my leg. But um, but yeah, there's been uh, there, there was a young guy who, uh, a couple days ago who got uh, who's now blind. Both both his eyes were shot. Right? Oh, my God. Um, so. And there's again about 200 people who who have had um, at least one eye blown out uh, throughout these throughout these demonstrations. Yeah, no, the 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 repression is is significant. Is significant. Uh, what what I will say is um, also that in spite of that, that the protesters are very determined. And you know, one one thing that they that that people say is that especially young people is that they they don't have the same fear that their parents had you know the perhaps because they didn't grow up in the dictatorship they know about the stories but they didn't grow up in it so they're they're out there fighting right and they're putting up they're putting up a good fight against you know these these thugs right because the cops there's really no other way to describe it like right? i mean the way that they behave uh is thuggish um yeah, and unfortunately, obviously, a lot of people are are being really seriously injured in these in these demonstrations. 
Yeah, I mean, getting shot in the kneecaps, I, I saw, and I don't know what the context was of this, but it seemed like cops coming up and actually just executing someone on the street in, in one video. I mean, just horrifying barbarism here. Yeah, they're rounding up they're rounding up leaders and their homes, right? Things which things which are completely illegal, right? Like, I mean, I've talked to student leaders, uh, like high school students, like going into and rounding them up at night, like going into their house, barging in, and then dragging them out, right? Like, um, this this is what's going on, like in 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 Chile, right? And again, you know, the the media is really not interested in these stories at all, <laughs> right? I mean, talk about Pinochet. I mean, the fact that this is happening now under this supposed neoliberal kind of administration that has taken over since this brutal dictatorship, of course, as the result of another democratically elected leader being uh, deposed by a CIA backed coup, the reign of terror of Pinochet's dictatorship. And the holdovers today um, with the neoliberal government that has taken over and, and not really had a proper reckoning of, of this brutality and the significance of the fact that the Constitution still kind of is emblematic of that reign of terror and never really revamped and, and the distrust of the neoliberal government to really take this um, and, and do the right thing with it, which is what you mentioned. So briefly talk about the holdovers of Pinochet, what that what that brutality was really like and how the neoliberal government has really not dealt with it properly. Well, yeah, like, I mean, aside from, you know, the the fact that the people responsible for the crimes committed during the dictatorship, the human rights abuses, the um, the murders, the tortures, uh, there's only been a handful of people that have ever been brought to justice. And, um, you know, the vast majority of them have been given, you know, uh, posh sentences, you know, more or less like house arrest, right? Um, you know, for, for the things that they do. Um, but the, the, the structures of, uh, the structures that were created under the, and the, the, the laws, the systems, everything, you know, has remained intact. The, the economy, the way that it was structured under the dictatorship has remained largely unscathed. Um, so everything in, in Chile is, is privatized. There's, uh, the 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 water the roads um, the education system the health system the pension system everything is subject to the whims of the market um, and you know as such again it isn't it isn't it isn't it doesn't start from uh, the, the the what people are going on in the streets complaining about each and every one of these aspects isn't uh, doesn't be doesn't begin from an an ideological position per se it begins from people having continuing to live under the consequences of what happens when you just submit everything to the private sector and to the market right so mm -hmm. um, you have the um, education system like I mean we're, we're talking about students students have been going out in the tens of thousands hundreds of thousands for years in Chile calling for reforms in education uh, to and for the most part like I mean they managed to win some concessions um, some very minimal concessions uh, that that basically government grants uh, to make it so that the the, the lowest uh, the, the poorest of the working class can have access to post-secondary education um, but the education system as a whole has remained intact so for example on, on the day that I was leaving I was uh, with some uh, family friends um, a, a young guy who was there he he was in a university uh, that closed down um, you know it was a private university they declared bankruptcy 
he had finished all his coursework but didn't do his thesis so basically he's screwed right he doesn't have any sort of recourse and that's part of of the 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 privatization of that education system uh it isn't just about the cost it's also about the lack of any sort of regulations around quality or accountability for what is a business right um and the same thing can be said you know when when you look at uh, uh the, the health sector with with uh hospitals, as well as the, the insurance that people uh, have to buy into in order to have even the most minimal level of coverage, uh, the, the pension systems, which I've already kind of, uh, you know, talked a bit about, um, electricity costs, which I was saying, you know, is also connected to, at least in, in very recently, uh, people have, have uh, also linked in with the fair increase because the, in, the, the increases in electricity costs happened around the same time and, again, just kind of contributed to, to all of that. Um, so all, yeah, all, all of these things have, have, were structured, were made under the dictatorship, um, purposefully. It wasn't just accidents. This is what the dictatorship, this is one of the things that the dictatorship was put in there for, right? Like Chile was the lab for neoliberalism. It was where Friedman and, and his, uh, uh, cohorts, uh, you know, used the country as a guinea pig for their theories. Um, and they, they employed it brutally, uh, to, to the detriment of most people, it actually, uh, for, for those who don't know, well, it's what's called the Chilean miracle was something that produced, uh, you know, the biggest economic recession that Chile had since the 1930s. Um, uh, it's the reason why my, my family left Chile, actually. My family didn't, didn't leave during the dictatorship. We left during the uh, economic recession of the 1980s. Um, so uh, those, those structures, those laws, those systems, um, they've, they've, there's been some reforms made over 30 years, but you know, largely they remained intact and people still continue to pay the consequences for it. And that's why people are going on the streets. I just wanted you to clarify, what, why was it called the Chilean miracle if it was uh, such a devastating recession? Uh, well, like, I mean, the, this is a, a well, according to uh, neoliberal thinkers, right, this is what uh, put the put the Chilean economy on path to um, the the sort of uh, growth and macroeconomic indicators that that uh, that the country lauds to today, right? Like, I mean, Chile is an OECD country. You know, it, it's it's floated around the the region as the model to follow, right? Because it's supposed to be the most developed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, what happened during the, the, the eighties and it was, it was more a reflection of, you know, what, what, uh, um, some of its, some of its other indicators were in terms of its economic performance at the time. But, you know, it was also a, a time where, you know, one out of every four Chileans was unemployed, right? Uh, you know, so there's, this is, it's, it's just a lesson, I guess, in, uh, how, um, economics are perceived differently based on, you know, what, what political perspective you have on what the economy should do, right? Uh, those of us who believe in economy should uh, serve the interests of the people, don't see the Chilean miracle as, as a miracle. Um, the neoliberal thinkers who, who think an economy should, you know, serve the interest of the private sector and their growth uh, are going to see some of the reforms that were made then, the, the, the privatizations and, and such, as having served their purpose. And Pablo, this is just a total side note um, about Pinochet, but one of the fascinating things to me about the political climate since Trump here is that the alt-right and specifically the Proud Boys have, right. have adopted Pinochet as an icon. Right. Um, and I, I 
kind of just wanted to get your take on that. I mean, being Canadian, you're probably familiar with Gavin McGinnis, obviously, um, <laughs> yeah. who's who's from Canada. Um, but they they actually market and sell T-shirts now. You see them at some of these these rallies that say Pinochet was right, yeah. with images of people sometimes Antifa protesters being thrown from helicopters. I just wanted to get your quick comment on that and also a little bit of backstory on where that imagery comes from. I mean, that was allegedly done by Pinochet's government, right? Yeah, no, it it was done and not just by his government, but by the the military governments of the day. Uh, Argentina was actually, that that happened a lot in Argentina uh, where the the military would, um, uh, you know, they, 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 obviously kidnap, torture, uh, suspected uh, left militants, human rights activists, whoever, um, uh, often basically drug them um, and then bring them out to sea and throw them overboard, right? So it wasn't just disposing of the body. Like, I mean, they, most people would get tossed out uh, while they were still alive or somewhat alive. Um, and Jesus so these, these, these were things that um, they were trained to do. Like actually in the last round of, of declassified documents that Obama gave to the Argentine government, um, the, the, the U.S. was selling helicopters knowing that these is, this is what they were being used for. Um, but the Chilean government did it too, obviously, the, 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 the regime of Gusto Pinochet. Um, well, what, what do I think about it? Like, I mean, obviously it's, you know, someone's got to be a, a an absolute lunatic uh, <laughs> uh you know there's there's lots of um you know conservatives and right-wingers that i disagree with um in but you know there's you got to be a particular brand of sociopath to to think that that's something that you would you should go around and with a t-shirt with um one, one thing i will say actually about that uh somebody that is more or less of the same ilk as as uh, these proud boys um actually uh, just made some news in Chile, um, uh, a U.S. citizen connected with far-right groups in California who would moved down to Chile in the 90s uh, just a couple days ago. One, one thing, one reaction from some upper-middle-class sectors has been to adopt the, the yellow vest thing and go out in the streets to protect their property. So this guy did that with some, I guess, some of his neighbors and actually shot somebody, right? Wow. Um, shot a protester in Reñaca, which is right next to, it's very close to Valparaíso. It's a, it's an upper middle class area. Uh, at least part of it is. Um, so obviously now, like, I mean, Chilean papers came out with like, you know, who, this is who this guy is. Uh, you know, he's a, a far right, um, kind of almost neo-fascist, well, actually neo-fascist, uh, from the U S moved down to, to Chile, very pro Pinochet, whatever. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how he fares if he goes into a Chilean prison. I don't think he'll. Do, I don't think he'll do very well in there. I'll tell you that. <laughs> wow, that is ridiculous. Um, just last comments on on where you think Chile is going. Obviously, these people are not stopping. Um, it seems to be just be strengthened by every time the government tries to force capitulation or compromise on anything. Um, just quick, quick last comments on where you see it going from here. No, like, I mean, I think I think that this is uh, something that the government now is just not going to be able to control uh, and people are not are not stepping down. Right. So I, I don't know where it could go. Obviously, there's lots of dangerous uh, places that this could go to as well, where we've, mm-hmm. we've just in the last couple of days seen a, a, a coup executed by far right elements in a neighboring country. 
Um, so I'm, I'm not going to say that, you know, uh, it's a foregone conclusion that the people are going to win on this one. Uh, what I will say is that the people are determined to win. Um, and it's a and this form of determination that I, I didn't, I hadn't seen in Chile, um, you know, and uh, also a, co a coalescing of forces that hadn't happened before. Like, I mean, it, it is important to note that uh, the Mapuche communities um, are acting in solidarity with what's happening and, and like looking to work in concert with what's happening. It's important to kind of draw that distinction because Mapuche communities themselves seeing themselves as distinct from Chile and, um, you know, uh, long um, asserting their right to uh, self-determination um, for their territories and a, a recuperation of, of uh, their territories. And all these things are, are coalescing, right? Uh, and so that, that's something that's, that's pretty unprecedented in, in Chile. So I'm, I'm choosing to be optimistic uh, around, you know, what, what is happening. If, it's, if, if this is just a matter of politics, um, it's clear that Chileans want radical change and are determined to get it. Uh, obviously, the only thing that's standing in their way is uh, a, a government that has shown itself to not want to listen and a ruling class that has historically shown itself willing to massacre people in order to maintain their wealth and privilege. Incredible. Uh, let's move on quickly to Ecuador, where another movement was able to reject an IMF austerity bill recently under the traitorous Lenin Moreno. I mean, you spent quite a bit of time living there in Quito working for Telesur. Uh, give us a sense of the movement as you saw it that was in the streets there and, and if what you think happened or agreed upon went far enough. Uh, yeah, like well, what happened in, in Ecuador was uh, something um, that... I think was predictable in a lot of ways. Um, you know, something around forty percent of the the, the country's um, you know workers work in the agricultural sector, and um, this this removal, the the what what Moreno did uh, among the many other things uh, that that he put forward, you know, neoliberal austerity measures that he put forward, um, you know, since he was elected. Uh, obviously not to do that, but, you know, things he's done anyway. Um, but the latest one, the, the, the thing that brought people out into the streets was an elimination of uh, gas subsidies, which people depend on. And, you know, I can I can tell you that um, in, in at other times uh, when there's there were discussions, you know, to increase bus fares by 10 cents, like, I mean, those things themselves also almost, you know, brought out. Uh, you know, toppled governments. This this wasn't something that was done by um, by Correa, uh, but you know, it was something that was being discussed for a while, and and people were adamantly against it because you know these this thing would affect again, similar to Chile, it would really not only it would affect the majority of people, it would affect uh, working people, but it would also uh, in this case, uh, in the the case of eliminating the gas subsidies, would affect the cost of everything because then you're affecting the transport of all goods, uh, particularly agricultural goods. So. Um, all those folks who work in the agricultural sector, a lot of them, um, you know, um, not not agribusiness. These are uh, smaller producers uh, working in co-ops and whatnot. You know, they they transport their things into the city or, you know, into other distribution centers. You increase the cost of gas that they use in order to transport these things. You're increasing the cost of everything. So people understood that. And, you know, they went out into into the streets. First, it was the transportation drivers. Actually, it didn't start with indigenous people. It didn't start with Akonaye, but mm -hmm. then obviously they came uh, on board afterwards and really kind of gave uh, the, the movement, the, the, the militancy and the numbers that 
that you saw. Um, obviously, the, the indigenous movement in, in Ecuador has a history of that. Uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, they routinely toppled governments uh, that that imposed, uh, you know, similar types of that looked to impose similar types of measures. So um, it, it was it was something that uh, I think anyone who knew that and people had been saying for a long time, you know, Moreno's going to put forward a paquetazo, like an, a neoliberal package, an austerity package something that Moreno had been constantly denying. No, 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 uh, there's no paquetazo, there's nothing in the works. Uh, but obviously everybody knew that that's what's going to happen, and particularly when they signed the agreement with the uh, International Monetary Fund. Um, you know, folks knew that this was coming down the pipes. So uh, when it did, you know, it was just a matter of not not if, but when, you know, people would would, would hit the streets on this. Um, now, the, the, the one thing that is kind of complex uh, around, you know, what the results of it were, um, is that, you know, the, 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 I, the folks from, you know, the, the, that were leading the movement ultimately made uh, a, a pact with a guy who's shown himself to really not be, you know, someone very trustworthy, right? Like, I mean, from, from, you know, the very, his very genesis of his government, uh, you know, it's, it, there's no disputing the fact that, he is not in. He's not doing what he was elected to do. Um, there's there's no one in the country that can dispute that. And uh, you know, even even opponents of the previous government of the Correa government, you know, have to acknowledge that. Like, I mean, I I covered the elections. I was there when he came into Telesur to to you know do his spiel as as a, a candidate. And you know, obviously, what he was saying then and what he did almost immediately after being elected, what he started doing almost immediately after being elected, are night and day. Um, so they made a pact with with this guy um, and are now like, I mean, I'm just reading some things over the last couple of days. They're 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 preparing for the government to come with another package, right? Um, would they manage to get them to step down from this particular decree? But the government, all they committed to do was to take down this particular decree. And, you know, yeah, bring something later. Um, so this also gives you some indication of some of the tensions within the indigenous movement itself. Um, because, you know, there's, there's the, the other option would have been uh, to try to bring down the government, uh, which would have probably triggered an election. Um, the thing is that there are sections of, and this is things that they, that they were saying openly, um, that are sections of the indigenous movement who... Uh, are against Correa and against uh, Correa's movement. So they didn't want elections because what that would pave the way for, what that would have paved the way for, was for Correa to come back and to run as a candidate, something that uh, both the right wing and uh, the, the certain sections of the indigenous movement don't want. Yeah, I mean, when I was in Ecuador, I was really impressed by the just development, I guess, in the country from when it was a colonial holdover with this collapsed economy from the 90s, public parks, developed infrastructure, vast social programs being expanded. I mean, we know how much people loved Korea. He could have easily won another term. He trusted Lenin Moreno. Um, you lived in Ecuador both under Korea and, and Moreno for a period of time. I mean, what, what specific kind of damage other than this neoliberal doctrine that he was trying to impose has Lenin Moreno done and, and what of Correa's legacy has he reversed since he's been in power? Um, everything. <laughs> uh, it's, 
Like, I mean, I, I, I really don't know how to, uh, you know, frame it as anything other than that. Um, it happened, it, it, it happened swiftly as well. Right. Which again, again, is like kind of like another takeaway, something else that, um, needs to be considered. Right. Like, I mean, um, I think, I think Korea, uh, and the citizens revolution did a good job of creating, um, creating a state that, that hadn't really existed in Ecuador before, um, you know, in order to be able to um, build roads and provide certain services, um, a level of sort of predictability and organization that that hadn't been available to Ecuadorians before. Um, and I think, you know, uh, the majority of people understood that to be a positive thing. Um, but, you know, those things were undone very, very quickly by, by Moreno. Um, and I'm not just talking about obviously those roads are, are still there um but you know entire sort of state processes and, and and infrastructure were dismantled really quickly everything from uh, ecuador pulling out of uh unasur and you know basically um repurposing the building that had been <laughs> that had been uh put there to eliminating entire ministries uh to you know returning to uh forms of administering um, you know, uh, certain um, public services, certain services uh, in a way that had been done uh, previous to Korea's government, which have just left everything in, uh, uh, created more disarray and, and disorganization, the sort of things that, that Ecuadorians really used to complain about, right? Like, you know, just, for example, going into register for a university. Korea used, uh, they implemented a system which wasn't great. People had complaints about that too, but the way that folks used to have to go and register before, like you'd have, people would say, like you'd have to go and camp out a day or two before a university uh, in order to be able to put your name in. And those are the type of things that have started to return, right, uh, to, to the country. Um, the the rule of law has, has been completely dismantled. Like, I mean, there's uh, certain bodies that were created in order to have uh, oversight of institutions. All those things have been, um, you know, dismantled and and were you were being starting to being utilized as political tools um, by Moreno in order to go after Correa and Correa's uh, um, activists associated with Correa's uh, party. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine, Christian Gonzalez, uh, is is in jail. He was he was jailed after the the protest. Um, and and get this, like literally, there's there's a tweet from the uh, the attorney general of Ecuador uh, posting the the evidence of his criminal involvement in the protest, which they said he had been supplying shields and food to protesters. So the pictures that they put were when they raided his house were literally of blenders, right? Like it, it's unreal. <laughs> it's unreal. Like, I mean, it, I, I can't express. It's sad. It's sad, actually, you know, because there was, like you said, there was lots of uh, great things that were happening. I'm not saying everything in Ecuador was great mm -hmm. and all the problems were solved, right? Or that, uh, you know, everything that Korea did was was beyond reproach. Uh, not saying that, but right right now, things that are happening are ridiculous and appalling, right? To, to see, uh, um, you know, rule of law and things that work just being dismantled, um, you know, by, by these... Uh, uh, Vende patrias, like, you know, people that, that are just, that are willing to sell their country and their people to, to the highest bidder, right? Uh, it's, it's just, it's sad. 
does some of this dismantling you're describing of the of the previous government include attacks on Telesur? And if so, can you describe uh, what kind of pressure or attacks uh, Telesur has faced since then? Uh, yeah, well, um, Ecuador uh, was, I'm not sure if they still are as a state. Uh, I would be inclined to think not, but, you know, I think it's possible that they still are a, a stakeholder in um in Telesur, uh, they they were under Correa, obviously, um, but uh, they they didn't provide material support for for the organization. So uh, it's not like money has been withdrawn. However, um, you know, Telesur broadcasts out of there in Spanish and also uh, for English, which means it needs access to airwaves, which are controlled by the state, um, and. Uh, those things have been increasingly closed off to Telesur. A few months, uh, you know, into uh, Moreno's government, while I was still there, uh, Telesur got dropped from the basic cable package as, you know, uh, something that was on that package. Um, and that's like the package that was being offered by the, you know, the, the, the state, uh, the state owned uh, telecommunications company. Um, it took about a day or so to get back on there. And, you know, we were told that it was an accident. But, you know, we knew that was just kind of testing the waters, right? Mm -hmm. To see what sort of reaction would be provoked from that. Um, eventually, Telstra was taken off of, you know, some of the, I think, most of the, the, the packages. Um, and, like, I mean, at that point, they don't need to come and close down the offices. They just kind of close off your access, right? Um, so in 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 that way, Telesur yet hasn't yet uh, uh, faced what other media has faced there. Like I mean, there's been other other local media, radio, some online media like Ecuador Inmediato, uh, an online news organization that published a, a lot of uh, you know really good investigative stuff about things that were happening uh, internally. Um, they've they've gone and been closed down or had their offices raided, particularly during the last protest. Uh, uh, Pichincha Universal uh, radio station uh, had had their offices raided. Um, there's been journalists who have been uh, persecuted. One of my former colleagues uh, who's still working at Telesur, Estefania, her dad uh, used to run the state uh, uh, news agency under Correa. Uh, he he was in he was jailed without any uh, grounds for about five months on some bogus corruption charges that ultimately they didn't have a shred of evidence to even link them to what ha what they were accusing had happened. Um, but he still went to jail, right? Um, and this, this is well before the, 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 the recent protests. So as a whole, like, I mean, the, 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 the environment for press in, in the country is uh, appalling. It's, it's very, very precarious. Uh, and the the silence from the same media or the same media watchdogs that had long been saying that Correa was authoritarian and was uh, violating uh, standards for free press, their silence is deafening. They have not said anything. So, I mean, besides the, you know, this, this seeming, you know, crackdown against organizations like Telesur, it's the government even tried to prevent Correa from coming back running for president again, uh, going as far as issuing an arrest warrant for him upon return. Is that, is that accurate? Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. Um, like, I mean, they're, they're looking at the, the reason for this is that they're trying to do the same thing to Correa that the Brazilians did to uh, Lula, right? Like, 
um, or that uh, in Argentina they were looking to do to Cristina uh, Fernandez, right? Which is throw throw the law, throw the legal system at them in order to make them ineligible to run, right? Uh, charges not with, like I mean proof notwithstanding. Um, obviously, like I mean. Um, Correa actually, uh, Correa had had left the country not even because of this. He had he had left because his his wife is is from Belgium, and you know he decided uh, long before you know he he'd actually finished that he wanted to take some years off and spend with his family. Uh, but it's a good thing he did; otherwise, he'd probably be in jail along with the guy who was his vice president, uh, Jorge Glass, um, or with my friend, you know, who's in preventative detention, right? Along with two other elected people. Uh, that the the head of the 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 person who was the head of the National Assembly, Gabriela Rivadeneira, is holed up in the Mexican embassy right now in in Quito. Um, they they don't want the Correa to come back. Uh, they're going to put up every obstacle possible for him to come back uh, because they they know uh, you know again notwithstanding whatever criticisms folks can have about uh, you know his uh, his uh, attitude or his perspectives on development, whatever, you know, he is still popular enough to be elected. And uh, the right wing knows that. And that's why they're going to do anything that they can in order to not have him come back. And if he comes back, they're going to they're going to jail him. Um, and, you know, they've already demonstrated that they don't need they don't need evidence. They don't need uh, to be able to have a case. You know, they can just put somebody in jail because right now they 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 decide what what's law and what isn't. I wanted to get your take on Bolivia because of course a US backed military coup was just carried out on the heels of these monumental shifts that you're talking about now in Latin America. Uh, leftist victory in Argentina, Chile and Ecuador's mass demonstrations and of course just one day after the release of Lula from prison. Uh, what do you think the regional significance is of taking out someone like Evo Morales, I mean, the first indigenous leader of Bolivia in a country that had the largest proportion of indigenous people um, in the region and also just one of the last revolutionary holdouts from the pink tide that, of course, began with the election of Hugo Chavez? Right. Well, first thing is that uh, what what I definitely want to put out there um, is that I, I can't believe that within left circles there's discussions about whether this is a coup or not. <laughs> like, I mean, I think, I think that's the first thing that's got to be said. That, that debate has got to stop. Whoever is engaged in that debate has just got to go away. Right? Like, right. Um, there, there, there was an unelected person who got a presidential sash put around her by a military guy. Right? Like, I mean, that's without a vote. And in and an empty chamber, right? Like that's that's a coup. I, I don't care how you if you want to defend it. That's another that's another matter. If you think that's a good idea, if you don't like Evo and you know whatever, but it's a coup, right? Uh, obviously, there it can't just be seen as something happening uh, uh, internally. Um, this is something that the OAS had a very big hand in. Uh, C. Burgess did a, a great dissection uh, and a debunking of the uh, OAS report that said that there was, that suggested that there was a, a fraud uh, by claiming irregularities. Um, you know, they wanted to push the, for this to happen. Uh, unfortunately, the, the heads of, of police and the, the, the heads of the military um, you know, they, they, it seems like those folks uh, were, were people that were brought on side from, from before. 
um, I saw that uh, actually both the, the head of the police and the head of the military had actually been um, their respective attaches uh, from Bolivia in the U.S. a few years ago. And obviously there's a history of, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. Uh, um, securing assets from militaries and police services of Latin American countries over the years. Um, obviously, I don't have any evidence towards that, but I'm saying it's 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 quite coincidental that those guys are the the ones that ended up issuing the suggestion for for Moreno to to step aside. Um, I don't think that this is over, though. Um, if you look on the streets of La Paz, I think that this is something that uh, is still going to be contested on the streets. It's actually something that's going to be contested as well in the diplomatic arena. Uh, things have changed uh, significantly over the, the last while. The fact that you have now Mexico and Argentina uh, being completely different from where they were a year ago and them being two of the strongest opponents of, of for example, Venezuela uh, at the OAS. And now you have uh, you know, two very different governments in place there, they're going to put a lot of pressure um, and uh, on, and obviously the Argent, uh, Mexico uh, has already taken in Evo Morales. They've been pushing the OAS to meet on this. They're going to exert pressure. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how long um, this coup is going to be able to maintain itself uh, given that, um, you know, and also given how obvious what they've done is right um it, it's it's going to be hard for for them to sustain um what what it means for the region obviously uh this is just another example of how far the right wing is willing to go in order to maintain their power and privilege. Um, and this poses real questions for the left, right? Um, the, the entire pink tide, all these things were predicated on this idea that uh, the, the, the thinking that had predominated in the left uh, in the previous decades around, you know, what were the ways in order to challenge power and take power, that those things no longer held true, right? That you could, you could take power and you could uh, institute a progressive program without having to, you know, con you know, contest for power, uh, thinking about uh, guns or violence. Now, unfortunately, it's the right wing that's proving that you do, right? It's the right wing that's utilizing force and violence here, right? Uh, they're showing that they're, they're not going to let go of this. They're not going to let go of power. They're not going to let you do your program. They're not going to let you get elected, right? Mm -hmm. They're not going to play by the rules. Um, Right now in Latin America, how many how many people in like we have two folks in there that have proclaimed themselves as president? We have another guy in Peru that's in there. You know he wasn't elected either. Temers, uh, uh, what's his name? Bolsonaro is only in there because they jailed his opponent. Right? Like this is this is the reality of Latin American politics and the limitations of what can be done under uh, a bourgeois democracy in Latin America are are showing themselves right um and this is something that progressives have to start considering what what do we what what do we take away from from all of this the it's 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 uncomfortable right but it's it can't be avoided it can't be avoided having these discussions what resources do you recommend just generally speaking on latin america um where people 
who sort of align with the you know the political viewpoint you're espousing and, and you know that Abby and I share. Where can people follow your work and and what other resources um, can people seek out? Well, like I mean, luckily there's lots. Uh, Got to give it up to, for example, I, I know the 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 folks at the uh, Gray Zone have been doing some really great work in terms of. Um, focusing in on kind of like the, the foreign meddling aspect, right? Like the, the angles of how uh, uh, U.S. imperialism particularly are, are well, the role that they're playing in, in Latin America these days, uh, Bolivia, uh, Venezuela particularly, uh, kind of come to mind. Um, there's, uh, I was down in Chile doing stuff for folks in, for Redfish. I think that they're doing uh, some fantastic work. There's there's other documentaries that have been produced that uh, I I've had no hand in, but I've I'm a big fan of the folks who who have worked on those. I think that those are great resources for people to look at and to understand. Uh, obviously, uh, Abbey and Empire Files. Um, I would still say that you know folks at, at Telesur are, are within the limitations that have been imposed because of the 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 the, the blockade on Venezuela are still trying to uh, put out information. Uh, um, you know, keep keep people up to date with the news that, of of things that are happening in the region. Um, yeah, uh, like I mean, there's lots of Spanish language resources. Um, unfortunately, the, the English language ones are are a little bit um, less. Um, I I write uh, still sometimes for um, RT uh, Jacobin. Um, I wouldn't say that I agree with all the stuff coming out of the Jacobin in the, the region, but um, on Latin America, but some of the stuff that, that they put out there is definitely worthwhile uh, to have a look at. Uh, other stuff I, I would definitely contest, um, but, uh, but yeah. That's great that they're asking you to write uh, about these issues as well. That's fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Pablo Vivanco. Really appreciate your insight, um, all of your crucial work, investigative work on the ground, and really shedding a very important light on all of these movements going on in Latin America. Really, really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Pablo. If you liked what you heard today, and you've been enjoying Media Roots Radio, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio. We have a new donation tier. If you donate $30 per month, you get access to Abby's documentary film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, and my documentary film series, A Very Heavy Agenda. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.